Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at UH1.com. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Before we kick off the show, if you're a fan of History Hack, please do what you can to support the show. We completely get that not everyone is able or willing to dig into their pockets. Times are hard. But by dropping a like, subscribing on Twitter and YouTube, and importantly, leaving a review wherever you get your podcasts, you can help the programme grow and reach more people. If you're interested in becoming a supporter, go to patreon.com forward slash historyhack, where you'll find perks from secret Facebook groups to early release material. If you just want to leave us a one-off tip, go to co-fee.com forward slash historyhack. The links are in the description. And whatever form your kind support takes, know that we are massively grateful. Enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to another edition of History Hack. Zach and Boney with you on presenting duties today. Hello, Boney. How are you doing and who have we got with us? Hello, Zach. Hello, everybody. We've got a fascinating conversation for you today because we are joined by Tom Arms. And we've just been chatting about Tom's experience. And this is lengthy, but he is an author. He is the foreign editor of the Liberal Democrat Voice. And most importantly, for the conversation we're going to be having, he's been covering Anglo-American relations for a half century, which means his new book, which is America Made in Britain, is written by a man who has some experience about both those countries that we'll be discussing today. So, Tom, welcome to the show. How are you, sir? I'm fine. Good afternoon. Thank you very much. We're delighted to have you. And I think this this is going to be quite interesting because the premise of the book and the title is rather bold, if we if we if we do say so. Um, so there's going to be quite a few people that probably won't won't agree with you there. But let's let's get cracking into this. So have you been challenged by sort of this sort of statement by the Americans that are descended by well, all Americans are descended by somebody else, really, aren't they? But Americans would call themselves Americans from somewhere else. So what kind of things would they say and how would you counter that statement? Well, I, I would counter it by saying that the, the English uh, or the British, if you prefer, but actually it was the English in the 17th century, uh, the English were the first ones there. And because they were the first ones there, they were able to write the rules. And those rules were primarily the law which is the basis of all civilizations. Uh, and so uh, America has those, those British legal roots, but in addition, there are the cultural roots, the philosophical roots, the religious roots, and everything else, all of which were written by the English before the others started arriving on the scene. 
Uh, it's early days yet in getting challenged uh, by uh, Italian-Americans or African-Americans or anyone like that. I did get challenged by an Anglo-American. Um, uh, I do a regular broadcast uh, for uh, uh, radio, talk radio stations in the States. And uh, the chap that I do the broadcast with said, America made in Britain, that's outrageous. And so I sent him a copy of the book and he said, you've got a point. <laughs> he liked it. So I, I won that argument. <laughs> There's no that's arguing a, with that, is there? That's a good starting place, isn't it? Let's, let's dive into some of this. I mean, I, I like what you say here, because, and this is something that comes out very clearly in the book, that you trace these ideals across an incredibly broad period of history. You know, you don't just start with American Genesis moment, you, you trace these ideas all the way back. And so it really to read this book is to read quite a detailed historical analysis of, of a lot of things that are significant in English history. But, but let's talk about that Genesis moment in the US. When the Pilgrim Fathers arrive in the USA, what ideas do they bring across with them, which then become embedded in US culture? Okay, well, first of all, I, I think you have to separate the American immigrant from the word or phrase Pilgrim Fathers, uh, because there were a lot of different types of immigrants. Uh, the Pilgrim Fathers were located uh, mainly in New England, uh, but you had the Quakers in Pennsylvania, you had the Catholics for a time in Maryland, uh, or Maryland as uh, the British prefer to say. Uh, I've never been able to say that. Uh, you had the Cavaliers who were much more uh, pro-monarchial in their views and elitist in their views uh, who were in the South, mainly in Virginia. Uh, and, and so you had a, a disparate group of people coming over from England uh, and settling in different parts of America where they felt most comfortable because the people around them shared their ideals and beliefs. One thing they all had in common though was a very, very strong belief in individual liberty. Uh, and that was really the, the touchstone uh, in, in America. It was the touchstone at the time in the 17th century and 18th century in Britain as well. Uh, whereas the, the continental countries like France and Prussia, uh, they all had autocratic governments. Uh, and the emphasis was on what you could do for your king. Uh, whereas in England at the time, the emphasis was on individual liberties, the end of divine right of kings, the English civil wars. Uh, by the end of the 17th century, you'd established the supremacy of parliament uh, over the monarch, uh, while Europe was still basically feudal. So we, we, you've mentioned the other European nations, because we have an interesting mix in the in the what becomes the united states with the spanish colonizing florida you've got the french in louisiana um being canadian you've got the, the french in canada as well so you, you have all of these different mix mixtures coming together um how do these ideas start to interact in in sort of shaping these this new nation that's slowly starting to form well you know they they don't really interact as much as you would think um uh, in Florida, for instance, uh, people tend to think of that as being Spanish. It wasn't always Spanish. It was Spanish, it was British, 
it was Spanish again, it was British, and it was Spanish again. And at some point, the French got in there for a little while. Um, and uh, so that, you know, that, that was sort of back and forth. Um, the, uh, again, the, the Spanish were uh, an autocracy, a feudal society. Um, and a lot of people liked the idea of, of British systems. A lot of people uh, were immigrating to England at the time from continental Europe because of the individual liberties they could find in England. Um, it was very much a, a sought after uh, place to be. And the ideals being proposed by the British in the 17th and 18th century uh, were finding root elsewhere in Europe, but not among the ruling elite. Uh, in, in the case of, of, the, of the French, they did have quite an influence, obviously in Canada, uh, and they had an influence in Louisiana. And in fact, Louisiana is the only state which does not recognize English common law as the root of their state law. It still pays a sort of legal homage to the French. Uh, however, they're largely overruled because the federal law in the states uh, is based on English common law. Uh, however, uh, you will know that uh, uh, in, uh, in Canada, there's a French-speaking Canada. Uh, uh, there are the, uh, uh, a lot of people in Louisiana who trace themselves back to the French settlers. Uh, and there's a strong French cultural element in Louisiana and New Orleans, uh, which you don't see in other parts of the, uh, of the United States. Uh, in, in Mexico, New Mexico, Arizona, California, I, I think you'll find uh, that because of the prejudice against the Spanish and Mexicans, uh, that the Anglo society still very much dominates uh, that part. And it, it's just, it just, as I said before, the, the English set the rules and they put those rules down in writing, which is very important. So they set the rules which were determined at the end of the 18th century. And they said, these are the rules and these are gonna be the rules forever. This is our constitution. And that became the, the framework, the political, the social and the legal framework for the United States. And a lot of the basis for that constitution was British. It was the British experience and it was based on British law. Well, you touched there on, on a really important kind of moment in the foundation of America proper, inverted commas, which is, of course, the rejection of, if you like, British rule through the American Revolution and certainly rejection of rule by the king. We do have that kind of perception that this is a moment at which the, the 13 colonies turn around and they reject British ideals. I'm guessing that you might not entirely agree with that. So what's your take on this? You're right to say that they were rejecting British rule, but they were not rejecting British ideals. And in fact, in many respects, the revolution was an attempt to uphold British ideals and British law. Uh, after the French and Indian Wars or the Seven Years War, whichever uh, uh, term you want to use, uh, the British were left with a huge financial debt, massive, absolutely massive. It nearly bankrupted the country. 
And they decided that they really had to make the Americans pay for this. I mean, you know, they fought the war. Most of the war has been fought in America uh, to protect American interests. Uh, so why shouldn't they pay for it? Uh, well, the problem with that is that uh, there's something called the Petition of Rights. Uh, and that was organized back, I think, in 1627. Uh, and the Petition of Rights set out some of the basic things which the Americans objected to. One was no taxation without representation. And they were proposing to tax the colonies, but not to give them any representation in Parliament. Uh, no billeting of soldiers um, in uh, private quarters, which was another thing. Uh, they insisted that uh, uh, because of the cost of uh, quartering troops, uh, that uh, they commandeer some of the, the, the private homes and put the troops in those. Uh, that was a complete breach of the 1628 Petition of Rights, which had been set down in law. Uh, and another one was no imposition of martial law. Well, they imposed martial law in Boston. That was one of the, uh, the causes of the American Revolution. Uh, and so they, they said repeatedly, you know, we want to have the same rights as other British subjects because we're British subjects. Why should we be treated differently? So let me just, I, I hear a lot of what you say there. I'm, I'm also very conscious that you talk about how Britain bank bankrupts itself in the course of uh, fighting the, the French Indian Wars or the Seven Years' War, as you say, whichever title you prefer. The French then do an equivalent, don't they, in spending a lot of money in trying to assist a fledgling independent America, which is what precipitates what the events that lead to the French Revolution. And, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, and this is a point that particularly if you, if you go to France and you talk to people, they like to sort of talk a lot about the, the unity or the sense of unity between the two nations. And they talk about to what extent do the two inform one another, which obviously is not what you're kind of suggesting. So, so what would you say is the French influence? Is, is that just wrong? Is, is this just kind of a perception that the Americans and the French like to kind of indulge in? No, no, there definitely is a, a, a French influence and there was a French political influence uh, after the revolution. Uh, there are a lot of people like Thomas Jefferson, for instance, uh, who felt very strongly uh, that uh, uh, America should have supported the French Revolution uh, and done more to support the French uh, in their efforts in fighting the British anywhere. Uh, but at the same time, they came up against people like Alexander Hamilton and John Adams, who were on the other side uh, of the fence. Uh, the, um, the Jeffersonians were called the Democrats or Republican Democrats or Republicans. Uh, and the, um, uh, the other side of the fence were called the Federalists. And there was this conflict between the two. Now, one reason for the conflict was that uh, America was tied in, its trade links were tied into Britain. Uh, and if it didn't continue those trade links, it, it wouldn't be able to exist financially or economically. Uh, their trade links were not tied into France. Um, and so the, the Federalists effectively won. Uh, uh, and of course, one of the reasons they won was because the French Revolution went a little bit too far, even for people like Thomas Jefferson. 
Yes, it certainly did. But there's a whole podcast to be had just, well, in fact, there's a whole series of podcasts to be had just on that, isn't there? Um, you, you talk about conflicts within the USA and there's a, a major event which obviously has to be considered within the course of the development of the USA. And I'm, I'm talking about the US Civil War. Um, what do we see coming out of that that embraces ideas that we can describe as British in their origins? And at what point do you think America starts to sort of assert its own dominance on its ideals and start coming out with ideas that are American, inverted commas? Yes. Uh, well, first of all, is the issue of slavery. Uh, and uh, the, the British uh, are responsible, were responsible uh, uh, for uh, bringing almost all the slaves to America. Um, uh, in fact, the, the royal family played a big part in that by setting up something called the Royal African Company. Um, and, uh, and so uh, that, that, that's number one. Was, uh, the, the other thing the British were uh, obviously involved in was the abolition of slavery, William Wilberforce. Uh, and uh, by the, uh, uh, the middle uh, or, or the second quarter uh, of the um, 19th century, uh, the British were taking the lead in stopping the slave trade and actually helping uh, abolitionists in America. Uh, they would send over speakers, uh, you know, they, they would put pressure on the government, uh, everything. Um, Harriet Beecher Stowe, who wrote Uncle Tom's Cabin, uh, sold 10 times as many copies of her book in Britain as she did in America. Um, so that that was, was one thing. Of course, during the Civil War, as we know, uh, the, the economic considerations tended to trump the, uh, the social and moral considerations. And we get to the period after the Civil War. And uh, that is when you start to see America coming into its own. Uh, it has sorted out its political problems. Uh, they are... Uh, slavery has been abolished. Uh, they are ready to uh, take hold of their manifest destiny and extend into the West. Uh, they start laying railway tracks in a big way. Uh, these railway tracks, uh, a lot of the steel uh, initially came from Britain. Uh, the railways themselves came from Britain. Uh, the financing for the railways came from Britain. Um, the markets for the goods, uh, mainly agricultural goods, were British. Uh, they all went to Britain. Uh, little known uh, is the role of the Atlantic Squadron. Uh, the Atlantic Squadron uh, was, was British, and basically it kept away any other European powers from Britain. Uh, the Monroe Doctrine, was, which was in the first half of the 19th century, that was actually a British idea put by George Canning to James Monroe, but Monroe pinched it and called it the Monroe Doctrine. Uh, uh, socially, there are other uh, things that came out of the Civil War. Um, uh, slavery ended, but then you had Jim Crow and segregation. Uh, by the way, that did, would, did not just apply to African-Americans, it applied to Native Americans as well. Um, and, um, but by 1870, 1880, uh, uh, America was following the British lead in industrializing uh, a pace, you know, at, at breakneck speed. And by the 
end of the uh, 19th century, uh, they had either overtaken or on the verge of overtaking using British technology, using British capital, uh, using British know-how. Uh, they were on the verge of overtaking uh, the UK. And uh, because they had a much larger market, domestic market, and it was easier to reach, it didn't have the same transport problems, uh, they just took off like topsy. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Is that a, a stated aim over the course of the 19th century? Are they sort of looking to Britain, looking at British success? Because, you know, there's no denying that Britain commercially is a huge success in the wake of the Napoleonic Wars into the 19th century by virtue of its ability to dominate the seas and expand its empire. Is there this sense of the Americans looking across the Atlantic and looking at the British example and thinking we want to imitate that? Or is there a kind of and more insular focus on sorting out things in what you might term the American sphere? Uh, yes, they were very much emulating it. Um, uh, and uh, I mean, you know, they refer to the Victorian era in America, just like we do here. Uh, people like Henry James uh, uh, would refer to the, um, uh, they, they refer to, to Britain being the best place for Americans to live. Uh, the phrase white man's burden, uh, which was coined by Rudyard Kipling, uh, did not refer to the British Empire it referred to the American experience in the Philippines. Uh, and, uh, and, and so there was a lot of, you know, you know, Teddy Roosevelt, for instance, was great. They, they were trying to, America at the time of the early 20th century, before the First World War, between 1890 and 1914, was itself setting up its own proper American empire in emulation of the British. I did not know that about the Kipling quote. That's, that's fascinating. Every day is a learning day. Um, so America, it gains this reputation across the 19th century as something of a promised land. In fact, it's been working on that, that concept of being a promised land well before the, the, turn, uh, the start of the 19th century. You know, people kind of seeing this place as somewhere where they can go, make their fortune, starting what they hope will be a new, better life. And that sees an influx of cultures, courtesy of migrants from across Europe and, of course, Mexico. So how does that end up interacting with the British influence? Well, it's, it's more of a cultural interaction than anything else. 
so, you know, you, you'll get um, uh, actors and, and a lot of people that which will be drawn from what you might call the ethnic communities. There are some political repercussions. The Irish immigrants, for instance, uh, are still, if you like, a, a political problem in, uh, in the United States and have a, a big influence on policies there. Uh, you don't you don't tend to get uh, the the various ethnic groups having the same uh, political influence as uh, as the Anglo's. The Anglo influence is, or the British influence, is more subtle. And again, it goes back to the fact that they wrote the rules, and those rules are still in force. Um, and they can't be easily changed because it's a written constitution. And in fact, since the constitution was written, including the 10 amendments in the Bill of Rights, there have only been 27 amendments in 230 years to the US constitution. Is that because of a, a lack of desire to change or is it the complexity of changing them? Or, or is there kind of a, a, an acceptance that actually, you know what, this law it works is there even an acknowledgement that this is sort of british in its origins no i don't think there is an acknowledgement of that and that's one of the reasons i i read the book but it's basically down to the complexity it, i i studied history in america and when i came over here it and i realized that there was history before 1607 which was a real shock uh, i uh, you know, it, it sort of it just struck me that Americans tend to think that uh, the United States somehow or another rose like Venus from the waves uh, out of the ether and fully formed in 1776 or 1607, which, of course, was not the case. Uh, all of us, all of us, every single country, every single person is a result of our historical past. And, you know, a past before 1607, before 1776. And we can never, any of us, escape that. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. We have to consider World War II within all of this as well. The relationship between Churchill and Roosevelt is famously a very strong one. And Britain becomes, let's face it, utterly reliant on American money and industry to assist it through the Second World War. Had it not been for American production, you know, things like the Battle of Britain could have turned out actually very differently. So how does World War II affect the interaction between the two cultures? Well, let, let, let's start with, uh, with first of all, saying that the, uh, you know, we're, we're touching on the phrase, the spectral relationship, which really came out of World War II and the relationship between Roosevelt and Churchill. And I'd just like to, to make the point that I don't think there could have been a political and military special relationship if you hadn't had the, the relationship going back 
really to medieval times in Britain before it. Uh, that was the seed that allowed the special relationship to flower in World War II. My last chapter is entitled Role Reversal. Uh, and that's exactly what it was, you know, uh, up until World War II, well, certainly up to World War I, uh, Britain was very much the senior partner. Uh, uh, America was vying for uh, uh, senior partnership or, or, or sort of joint partnership for a period after World War I, but it went through isolationism and, um, and the depression, which sort of held it back. Uh, and then comes World War II, and you're right, you know, Britain was fully dependent, needed America entirely, it could not have won the war, or maybe it could have won the war, but it would have taken another five years or something. Um, and uh, and the, the roles were simply reversed. Uh, it was not always a happy relationship. Uh, the uh, Americans insisted on uh, payment of the debt as quickly as possible. Uh, they looked for every penny that they could squeeze out of Britain. Uh, in World War I and World War II, 50% of British GDP was spent on the war effort. 50, 50%. Uh, and that all had to be repaid. Um, they had not finished repaying the debts from World War I to America when World War II uh, uh, started. In fact, they suspended those debts, I think, in 1933, uh, and then they had to be tacked on to the World War II debts. Um, America refused, despite the fact that a lot of the technology for uh, the atomic bomb uh, came from Britain initially, the Americans refused to have them, let them have uh, access to the technology. Uh, and so Britain had to start all over again to develop its own atomic weapon. Um, as we know, the Americans completely scuppered Suez, uh, which deserved to be scuppered, uh, but um, uh, you know, that, that caused a, a lot of ill feeling between Washington and London. So they haven't always agreed, but when it comes right down to it, it's always been a sort of dispute within the family. Uh, and at the moment, the, it's a bit like the, the son or the daughter has grown up and is telling the, the aged parent uh, what you've got to do before I put you into a care home. I love that analogy. Uh, that's <laughs> the aged parent before you're being put into a care home. Okay, I want to stay with this kind of idea of role reversal, if we may. Um, to what extent have we seen a reversal of this in recent years, partly through globalization. You know, are we more inclined now to absorb American ideals and, and American culture these days? And I'm thinking about, you know, things, even little things like, you know, McDonald's being in almost every town. And, you know, Halloween used to be a huge thing in, in the States and, and was a very small thing over here and has become much more of a, a deal. Are we more inclined to do these things or are these just kind of superficial things that don't give us a proper picture of what's really going on. Well, let me start off by saying I love Halloween. You know, I, I, I decorate the house. I'm a monster. <laughs> and I, I, I frighten as many children as I can. I, I'm really good at it. <laughs> and, but 
I, I think we're talking really here about Hollywood uh, and we're talking about money. Uh, and America has the money, it has Hollywood, it has a huge cultural influence, massive soft diplomacy, uh, because it has this market of 360 million people, uh, which provides a base uh, to which they can sell their ideas and sell their businesses. They can then take the profits from that and expand it overseas. And obviously, uh, the first markets they would be looking at are English-speaking markets. Uh, and so there's Canada, uh, and then probably next on the list is the UK. 15% uh, of all foreign direct investment in the UK is American. And Britain, I think it, it was, and I think uh, it was the largest investor in the US. I think it was overtaken for a time by Japan, but I think it's up there again. I think it's like 10% of all foreign direct investment in the US is British. Um, and you know that foreign direct investment, they will be investing in things like American companies that will operate here. Uh, I mean, Ford Motors, for instance, we tend to think of, the British tend to think of that as a, a American Ford or British Fords. Uh, but they started, they, they were the first, Britain was the first country after America where Henry Ford uh, sold his uh, and, and built his cars. Um, and Singer sewing machines, Hoovers, you know, all these things uh, were started in America. They built up a base in America. And the first thing they did was move operations to Britain. So I almost have visions of people kind of asking, yes, but does that mean that everything in Britain then became made in America? Does that turn the whole thing on its head? But th this is the kind of the messy thing about globalization, isn't it? That e everything's interconnected with everything. Yeah, I, I, I'm actually a fan of globalization, although I can see the problems. Uh, I mean, globalization does a lot of things, one of which is it keeps down consumer prices. And as a consumer, I like my prices to be as low as possible. Uh, the other thing I think that globalization does is it reduces international tensions. Uh, I mean, you don't want to go to war with somebody uh, who is, you know, building your computers because you need those computers. Uh, you don't want to go to war with someone who's building your microchips because you need the microchips to run your computers. Uh, so so that, that's, that's why I like globalization. It's, it sounds like a pretty sound argument to me. If it makes war less likely, then, hey, let's go with it. Uh, perhaps we finally found something towards a solution there, but, you know, time will tell. I want to also pick up on something that you talked about earlier, which was the special relationship between Britain and the USA. As, as you said, you know, that case has been made very strongly in relation to the Second World War. But as we wrap this up, do you think that that is still true today? Yes, I do. Because I don't think it's special. I think it's indivisible, indissoluble. You know, it's, it is a fact of his, it's a fact of historical life. You, as I said before, we can't get away from our history. And America's history is rooted in Britain. 
that's that's a, a pretty emphatic statement. Uh, that that's brilliant. Thank you. Um, I, I guess I just have one last question, which is, what you what do you hope will change off the back of this book? Because this, as we said at the start, this is a bold statement. You know, this is a, a thesis that you've an idea that you've outlined very clearly for us. What do you hope will people will go away? thinking kind of differently off the back of this book? Well, I, I'm, I'm rather hoping um, that people will read the book and they will come to that same conclusion which I just outlined, uh, that no country is entirely unique, that there is no such thing as American exceptionalism. Uh, it's a myth. There's no such thing as British exceptionalism. We owe a lot to uh, people like Voltaire and Rousseau and the Romans and the Greeks and so forth. We're all products of our past. Uh, and I think that we should all look at not just British history or not just American history, but the entire flow of history and how it affects us in a particular country. Tom, this has been absolutely fascinating thank you so much for joining us your book america made in britain hopefully the title will be seared on people's memories after listening to this it's out now i've had the chance to read it it's a really thought-provoking read folks can get hold of it via the history hack bookstore the links will be in the description folks just follow the, the relevant things and and in fact although you can't see this tom has just shown me it's got a a, a great kind of picture of the american flag on on the front cover uh, with america made in britain blazoned on the front uh, but Tom thank you so much for your time this has been great thank you very much I've enjoyed it immensely hello folks Zach again here as you know we love bringing you these podcasts but each episode has a huge investment of time behind it for every hour of showtime there's often a good four or five or six hours of work that's going in behind the scenes we want to bring you more content video content even but as reality has hit and the need to earn a living has returned, we just haven't been able to do that. That's where you come in. Your support doesn't need to be financial. You can follow us on Twitter at hack underscore history. Find us on Facebook and Instagram. Subscribe on YouTube. Even simple likes, shares and retweets make a huge difference in widening our reach beyond the small army of you who tune in. And if you love the show, leave a review. If all our listeners were able to find the two minutes to do that, it would massively increase our reach. Of course, we totally get that times are hard and money is tight. If you can spare something and want to, there are different ways that you can help. If you want to become a regular supporter, check out patreon.com forward slash history hack. There are all kinds of perks across different levels of support, with prices starting at £3 a month. If you just want to send us a one-off tip, then visit co-fee.com forward slash history hack. The links are in the description to this episode. But importantly, also have a think about supporting our listeners. The hour they spend with us is a minuscule fraction of the time that they spend researching and writing their books. With that in mind, we set up the History Hack bookstore, where you can support both them and us instead of funding Jeff Bezos's next trip into space, which is what pretty much happens when you buy via Amazon. Again, the link is in the description, and we have a huge back catalogue of titles written by our guests. When you buy via uk.bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack, we get a percentage, and so do independent booksellers. Whatever form your support takes, 
we massively appreciate it. So from Alex, Boney and me, and the rest of your Down the Pub regulars, thank you and have a great day. Normally being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you.